Hello, and welcome once again to The Dice Are Screaming. I'm Randy. I'm Mike. And together we form the gestalt of The Dice Are Screaming Podcast. Welcome, and yeah, we're coming at you again on schedule. You know, we've been able to be cranking them out here pretty well. So. Yeah, Thursdays have been working for us. It's uh, my regular day off, which is not bad for us. I mean, given that we are merely the lurid tableau. Of gaming oh, podcasts. This doesn't bode well. Yeah. <laughs> the NSFW tapestry of yesteryear. Oh. Gaming podcasts. Yeah. Avert thine eyes or save versus blushing. Uh, the unsavory spectacle. <laughs> oh, we are a spectacle in our unsavory. So, hey, welcome. Uh, today we're going to be talking about a second edition product. We don't talk about much about second edition, not out of. Oh, it's not antipathy. You know. There's just not a whole lot that happened back then. Uh, we are eventually going to cover Dragon Mountain, I think, coming up here shortly. but Or maybe not too distant future. Maybe shortly might be a little uh, presumptive of this. But uh, today we're going to be talking about Alcadim. And uh, yeah, this, uh, this comes with a little bit of a content warning. There are some aspects that, taken out of context, can be a little rough to deal with uh, slavery and certain culturalism religious extremism uh you know factionalism uh you know questions of like historical appropriation uh, yeah there's going to be some of that in here so and we're going to address those but we're also going to the reason why we want to cover it is because it was um a unique flavoring in the Annals of Second Edition. It was originally just to come out as a Second Edition product for about maybe two, maybe three years, but it got an extra extension because it did pretty well. I got to play a few games in the RPG of it and rather enjoyed myself. So um, it was a surprise for me. I ended up picking it up late and got a few of the supplements, but I did like the tone and the art style on it. The uh, book itself is well presented. Yeah, Jeff Grubb did a fine job in the uh, overall editing and shaping of the book. Uh, I know that there were a great many more contributors involved. Oh, yes. Uh, but the final product is well-organized and extremely attractive. So, you know, kudos to Mr. Grubb. Yeah, this is a 92 offering. But uh, before we get into that, we also want to get into a little bit of where we're going here. Um, glad that people have been enjoying our podcast. We might be shifting to Mondays. It's just something that me and Mike, uh, where since we'll be gaming, he can show up a little bit early and we can get the podcast out. Yeah. So um, we'll probably do it and then I'll put it back out on Thursdays. So if you folks have anything where uh, maybe you'd like us to bump up our schedule, let us know. Either on the Facebook page. We might let it go back to Wednesdays, which... Uh, oh, yeah. We, yeah, we, we can record to... it on Mondays and then uh, I can uh, put it out on, after Wednesday, editing it on... Uh, Hello, Ragnar. Sorry, cat. Or my cat. He, he apparently likes to be on the podcast as well. So now he is immortalized. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. The, the peanut gallery occasionally speaks out. Yeah, he wants to uh, enunciate that he is part of the podcast because um, this is his house. So. <laughs> uh, contributions from the peanut gallery are expected, but not necessarily welcomed. Uh, that having been said, uh, we've been trying to reconstruct an ideal time period to do our recordings, and the fact that like I'm going to be here on Mondays anyways 
just lends us a perfect opportunity to ensure that whatever else goes wrong with the rest of the week, at least we had one window period in which to record promptly and in a timely fashion. Uh, so, you know, having it ready a couple of days in advance before the podcast is released, it's probably a hot idea. Yeah. So I'm definitely in favor of that. Plus, we'll also be doing some very short uh, at the intros, uh, like right now, uh, some short discussions on the events of said campaign because it's mm -hmm. got unique qualities we mentioned in our last podcast uh, that the level of player participation in world creation is much higher and therefore the shape and content of that campaign, the direction it takes, are also going to be partly player dependent. Uh, you know, this is not going to be the traditional structured campaign. Uh, I love it as an experiment, and we're going to be operating in the kind of basic system uh, of yesteryear. So uh, this is going to be a little bit of a departure for me. I, I haven't actually played in that system since freaking junior high. That yeah, and we're, we're, we're using the basic because uh, it's really... Uh... So stripped down, so simple. Yeah, it's able. We're able to use a, a higher degree of imagination and engagement. Well, uh, you have to. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. not everything is settled. Not everything is cut and dried. Uh, so many areas are left for DM adjudication. Uh, that honestly, handing some of the responsibility to the players is a smart choice. Uh, when you've got a table full of experienced gamers, you can actually do that, and it's not going to all go haywire instantly in a room full of 12 year olds i can see where you might want to like restrict some of that agency mm -hmm. <laughs> well, there's a lot of there's a lot to say about uh basically and, uh, it is endured for a good reason and uh we're going to dip take a deep dive into it and this may be a, a long-going campaign for us of more than just uh, a year or two so Looking uh, pretty good. And, and along the way, that will include, and like this is the, the merest of foreshadowing. This is not the uh, Psyomancer intruding. Uh, it, there will be discussions of core differences in the structure of uh, basic and expert D&D uh, compared to the structure of advanced second edition, uh, third, fourth, fifth, so forth. Uh, so some minute examinations will happen along the way. Uh, so we can foreshadow those. We'll foreshadow. Now, now the Psyomancer, on the other hand, oh, now he's got some stuff for you. Uh-oh, what, what's he got? Uh, I gaze into the shadows once again. But be careful. You know, if you gaze into the abyss, the abyss gazes back at you. Uh, well, the abyss gazed back at me, and then it smiled and winked, and it oh. said, hey, guess what's coming? Uh, and it told me, we're going to continue our examination of the Uber module, uh, which gives us our, our next stage, after having covered the giants, of descent into the depths of the earth. Uh, oh. D1 and D2. Yeah, we're going to continue our examination of that. And so expect, uh, well, I think the easiest way to say is that expect us to uncover all the little stones in that one because that will be a take apart. Those are pretty much combat heavy modules. So we'll be doing some of the story elements that may be missed in the fact that you're rolling initiative quite often getting through the middle yeah. of those caverns. It's a brutal journey 
uh, through the Underdark. And there is so much opportunity for player slayage. I mean, it is just incredibly difficult, even for high-level players. There's a room of 42 trolls. Come on. Yeah, that, that is no peach. I mean, if, if you're looking for an opportunity to let fly all the fireballs you had at your disposal, this is that opportunity. So, yeah, we had to use just about every resource we had to get out of there. Yeah, that's a lot of freaking trolls. Um, <clears throat> Now, Blade Barrier, Wall of Fire, and a Ring of Shooting Stars. <laughs> and a wild, uh, Staff of Fire. Yeah, They just keep coming. Wand of Fire. Yeah, this was our, like, you know, zombie apocalypse moment uh, as a party a long time ago. So many trolls. <laughs> they keep getting back up. I'm all out of stuff to burn them with. I think I have a spare flask of oil somewhere. Uh, no, it it is a challenging ad- adventure series, and... It kind of, it does have these wonderful story elements that fall by the wayside. So getting a chance to go into some of the more nuanced details, the, the subtle, implied, well, not even implied, they're, they're referenced, but they seem small. Yes. Compared to the uh, overarching narrative of like, oh my God, this area has this many monsters looking to eat you. Uh, the factionalism of the drow, the subtle implications that there's more afoot and that there's perhaps a way to wedge yourself into uh, you know, the, the politics of the region and to exploit those loopholes to your advantage, uh, ultimately leading to like D3 and Q1. Uh, but that stuff gets lost in the, the thread. People forget all about that uh, because it is combat heavy yeah so we're gonna we're gonna deep dive and really pick it apart hopefully with some details that will prove to be extremely useful to other dms if they're like retroing that campaign series oh boy it is fantastic and here is some extra stuff you can slip in or it's been a while since you rolled initiative so (laughs) yeah you know and we'll soon fix that while we're rambling here for a discourse i think uh it might be mentioned maybe we should do a look at uh basic Dungeons & Dragons from uh, the BX, the Moldvay Cook versions, and uh, the Metzner version. Maybe we should do a look at that in the future. Well, now, we did have a discussion uh, on the, the you know, Moldvay versus Cook, uh, but we were not examining the specific product uh, at the or time. Or Metzner, you mean, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, we, we had a, yeah, sorry, Moldvay Metzner. Uh, yeah, the BX uh, is the Moldvay Cook kind of basic D&D and then uh, Metzner uh, a couple years later came back with the DECMI the Basic Experts Companion Masters Immortals yeah uh, the final iteration of you know basic and the rules cyclopedia would further divide them all but we're not going to get into that <laughs> love the rules cyclopedia but uh, yeah old school essentials anyway let's get into it uh, yeah we were talking about Alcadim there's some content warning in here so look if um this is not your cup of tea. We have some other uh, fine podcasts maybe you go back and listen to or uh, give this one a pass. This is one where we want to just kind of look at some of the inspirations. And uh, just going to start out here that the 1001 Arabian Nights, uh, Alibaba and the 40 Thieves, uh, the Fantastic Voyages of Sinbad. This is Al Qadim. And uh, it is D&D's attempt to kind of take a lot of those elements and put them into a formalized setting. And initially, this was supposed to be into the Forgotten Realms. 
but uh, it kind of became a standalone thing. And I think that speaks well of it because this is a rather comprehensive look at a different culture and some of the itinerations of where fantasy originated. And when we start out with the origins of fantasy, we would be a poorer society if we didn't acknowledge that the uh, uh, Thousand and One Arabian Nights was not uh, one of, if not one of the precursors, the formative setting for the many tales of that's a mysterious, inscrutable East, or as it would later become, the Middle East. But these had made their way westward and had been formalized into a full treatise and then a fully bound book that became beloved of many people. Of course, I can't imagine some of the, the Scheherazade telling these tales to keep herself alive every night. Yeah, there's a couple of tidbits here I want to focus on as we begin. Uh, the origin story of uh, this book begins with a thousand and one nights uh, and that collection of tales uh, wow okay i mean it although obviously more adult in nature uh, it is analogous to things such as what ultimately became grimm's fairy tales yeah, so it is as culturally relevant uh to the middle east and you know that region as the Grimm's fairy tales is to Europe. Uh, and discounting it as uh, irrelevant is kind of an insult to the material. I mean, just the incredible influence that this had. Uh, I, I want to mention- From Dunsey that, to Lo Lovecraft, which yeah, hey, they're not too far apart, sorry. Yeah, H.P. Uh, Lovecraft uh, was enormously influenced by it. And uh, as people we've mentioned, uh, H.P. Lovecraft's uh, you know, a really high-handed uh, contempt for almost all other cultures than the one he was born in. But his literary admiration transcended that. This yeah. is this is a, a legendary collection of tales that he looked upon with great favor and admiration, and it was influential to him. Uh, the root pieces, the earliest evidence dates back to the ninth freaking century yes oh. yeah it was like we we don't know exactly when they were first put into a compilation but we do have a fairly good idea that this is where we see other people talking about it so we can nail it down to about the ninth century the origins yes um the secondary references which is other people's books referencing the existence of this as a book uh, existed as early as the 12th century. Uh, so we can be reasonably certain that it had achieved book form in Persia uh, and or the Middle East uh, by that time. Now, this still was not widely read in the, in the West. Uh, it was not until we get all the way into the, what is it, the dawn of the 1700s. The, the, yeah. 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 It's at that point that you begin to see these uh, early translations, none to English at that point. Uh, the early translations begin to work their way into Europe. Uh, and I believe it was Mr. Galland, Antoine Galland, who did one at the dawn of the 1800s. And the Galland edition uh, in the era of printing, which, you know, again, this makes a big difference. The, the era of printing presses and mass distribution uh, and the increasing rate of literacy amongst people, 
meant that for the first time these books were yes. these tales were getting a wide audience and people loved them uh, they had an overwhelming impact on stage and theater uh, through the 1800s and into the like early 20th century and they had this indelible footprint they put on so many creatives of the last 200 years and if you think for a moment uh, that oh I, I really want to cover the fact that inside this like almost nesting doll of wonders yeah that that's is, a good way to put it yeah the nesting doll uh, and that's an appropriate analogy because uh, the combined meta narrative with internal narrative the storytelling style of like a story is being told within a story um, <laughs> uh, with a meta narrative lesson and then a micro narrative lesson uh, all the way throughout it's one of the earliest known examples of that style of storytelling uh, which it's actually incidentally uh, dates back to a sanskrit indian tradition of storytelling so there are elements that date back even further than the ninth century uh, <laughs> right in, in the, terms of the style the parts of it, of it may have uh been imported from other cultures even farther east beyond the what we would tend to call the caliphates at that time oh yeah the, and, uh, they used, yeah because uh, you would want to stay for the next part of the story so if you ever missed a night of the story you would miss a whole another part of the narrative that was being told and the micro narrative inside yeah it's it's a crazy thing but it was the it, before there was tv yeah <laughs> uh, storytelling was incredibly important uh, poetry and like this combines all of the above and inside this book uh, the individual stories include things that are the protean dawn of crime fiction uh, the beginnings of horror uh, the beginnings of science fiction which like not what we think of as true science fiction per se, but it is alluded to within the traveling to other cosmos and the witnessing of other worlds, which are very different from our own. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. And metaphysical, the other planes of existence could be traveled upon. Bingo. So yeah, you're, you're looking at uh, things that predate uh, and that when they had contact with the rest of the world, uh, they inspired so many people throughout the 1800s and if you think that had no impact on the people that we now look on as the creators of science fiction all the people that we think of as science fiction and fantasy fiction uh, magnates uh, and horror fiction and whatnot they were wonderfully literate and they were not unaware of this particular tome uh, and so to give a short form version of a thousand and one nights uh, it's the tale of Shahrazad, who is newly married to a king who has killed all his other wives, so that, you know, like, on the day he marries them, uh, you know, like he, he weds them, beds them, and kills them, so that his heart will no longer be broken by faithless people, uh, <laughs> because after experiencing such a heartbreak, he is so embittered that he doesn't let any bride survive the night. Shahrazad cleverly tells him a tale that is so enrapturing that when she doesn't finish the tale that night, the king does not kill her. Like, 
well, okay, you know, I, I, I can put this off for a day. I'd love to hear the end of that story. And she ends the story the next night and starts the next story, tells it late into the night, but doesn't conclude it. And so on and so forth for a thousand nights until she has borne him three children and the king realizes that he loves her dearly and that clearly in three years she has been completely faithful to him and there is no point in killing her. So, uh, that it would be a terrible thing to do. So, his broken heart is mended and her life is saved. Uh, <laughs> that is essentially the meta-narrative of A Thousand and One Nights. Uh, contained within it, it's not actually a thousand stories, but it is between, depending on the ancient editions or the newer editions, somewhere around 200 separate little tales, uh, including those most familiar to us, Alibaba and the Forty Thieves, yep. uh, Aladdin and his magical lamp. And flying carpet. Oh, well, yeah, let's not forget that flying carpet. So D&D, without really taking a great deal of time to reference a lot of this, uh, had acres of stuff. You know Gygax and all of them uh, in the early days of D&D had read tidbits of this. They had clear knowledge of uh, Thousand and One Nights. And in this book, as we look at Al-Kadim, there is an open and direct acknowledgement that this is where that material came from. We love it. This is a beloved part of the game itself. Uh, and here is our opportunity to put it in a more relevant context, uh, instead of simply hijacking a few magical items and a couple of spells, uh, and, like, and a bunch of creatures. Mm. So instead of basically harvesting uh, that collection of stories for a bestiary uh, and a couple of knickknacks, uh, here is a setting appropriate uh, zone in which to bring all of that to life. But I, I do like the introduction, which quite honestly is the most candid and most grateful acknowledgement uh, I have seen in a while. Okay. Mm. Uh, you, you see a lot of little homages where people will slip in a comment, you know, or greatly inspired by the works of so-and-so, and then they leave it at that. No, this is, you know, paragraphs of explanation on the things that brought this book about. Uh, and the largest section of that introduction is given over to Thousand and One Nights, uh, or Arabian Nights. Yeah, the Arabian Nights is this later called oh, it has been known by many titles you know, like the book of the tale of a thousand nights or a thousand and one arabian nights it it's morphed and shifted many many times fascinatingly i am given to understand that it is not overwhelmingly well regarded uh, in the countries that it was spawned from uh, you know it's viewed as not being a particularly poetic work, uh, although there is a great deal of poetry within it. Uh, it is not considered as skillfully rendered or as, you know, like thoughtfully prepared. Uh, it's more of a body tale that would be told in taverns and therefore mm. it's, it's not viewed as high literature. 
which, you know, I admit uh, a great deal like the Grimm's fairy tales. This is not the stuff of, you know, I mean, this is not Tolstoy's War and Peace. You know, this this isn't that level of greatness. But there is so much fancy and inspiration within that whether it's beloved or not, uh, I, I have to hand it to it. it. It had influence way beyond what people expect. Like, in a, analogously, I would say, hey, you can like or dislike the Beatles, but you cannot dispute the fact that that altered the scope of music uh, forever after. Yeah. So uh, that's <laughs> A Thousand and One Nights is like that. And that brings us to the land of fate. Well, yeah, and um, again, before we jump in there, we're going to come up on, coming on the break right here. I'd like to end it off with also saying that the cinematic uh, allusions to Arabic fantasy are right. And, you know, oh, Buster yeah. Crab, a lot of the early stuff, uh, including the rare Harry Harryhausen films of The Seven Voyages of Sinbad and oh, other yeah. tales. Well, uh, they have loomed large in our imagination, and there's a lot of good cinematic material that has been harvested for this as well. And, you know, this is one where it kind of combines them all in the same way that kind of D&D is a gestalt of all the fa fantasy originating out of Beowulf on forward through the centuries. Yeah, if you can imagine Beowulf, uh, if it had encompassed 200 separate stories instead of one, I mean, it, it gives you a hint of the the scope of a thousand and one nights uh, it's it, it in its earliest forms it included less material uh, but people continued to add to it across centuries uh, including relevant tidbits uh, to each region uh, stories that were very popular that had newly arrived yeah. uh, and so you even find things that where uh, the time period in which the supposed tale teller Shahrazad existed. Uh, there are tales that clearly reference materials two to three hundred years after that person. So uh, there is that. It, it's a clear indication that the continued editing and evolution of that beloved collection of stories was still underway. Mm -hmm. uh, I, who knows how much more it could have morphed before it became formalized, but. Its arrival uh, in the era of widespread mass printing. Wow, once that happened, I mean, there have been multiple different editions and translations, but they are, wow, uh, so firmly entrenched. And we'll cover some tidbits after the break uh, about uh, some of the controversy that surrounds the book uh, itself and then that eventually bleeds over onto this book by in you know, incidental connection. Yeah, I'd just like to end the part that where you said, or pick up from the part and end it on the note that you said that it's not highly looked at in the lands that spawned it. And I think that that's kind of par for course because it's a populist book that doesn't really highlight the cultures and specifically the changes both historical and well religious doesn't carry the cre same credence it used to and you know that it may have led to its diminishment in some minds of some 
uh, more Middle Eastern scholars. I personally think that uh, just like anything, like how comic books and certain other uh, pulp elements have always been looked down upon by high orders, and now everything that we have in media seems to be with superheroes and uh, nerd fiction, it it's coming into its own. You can't diminish it. You may, you know, higher educated or uh, more scholarly types may dismiss it offhand, but they can't completely dismiss it because its effect, by and large, is very impactful, and it carries a great weight with it. Yeah, the, the people who are producing a lot of material today are the creatives of the comic book generation, and whether you like it or not, uh, that, like, low populist pulp Hello, wins bro. again and like this is the story of like another piece of popular well, remember that shakespeare was looked down upon too and yes his body plays uh, with their inappropriateness turned out to be for the considered masses. the underpinning of western civilizations literature uh you know yeah so that's i i attribute the same level of importance to a thousand and one nights mm-hmm. uh, it has that kind of incredible scope and reach all right all right well, we're going to take a quick, quick break, gather our breath, and we'll be right back. So stick around. And we're back. So thanks for sticking around. Yeah, we spent the first time just kind of uh, tiptoeing around the product, talking about uh, some of the more scholarly and antecedents of these uh, of this game and you know it goes without saying that having to set the tone for this is probably uh, really knocked out of the park here man that, that is uh, that is an outstanding narrative of the impact of a thousand and one arabian nights and persian fantasy yeah persian and arabian fantasy uh hidden in one collection that then proceeded to crisscross countless languages and be recopied and redistributed all around the globe, uh, and then proceeded to be the inspiration for theater and eventually for film. Uh, if we're going to talk controversy, you know, like we do have to, I, I want to kind of rip the Band-Aid off in this first portion uh, and just flatly acknowledge some. Because look, this is this is not going to be a denialism. Uh, there are some elements of this, like collective history, that uh, how do I put it? Uh, it was extremely exploited in the sense that when Hollywood of yesteryear got its hands on anything, uh, it basically. <laughs> a collection of white people play people from somewhere else. Yeah. Uh, and you're like, let's just yank the band aid off and say, yeah, all right, that's a thing. That totally happened. Uh, and is it cringy and awkward? Yes. Yes, it is. Uh, yeah. Now, Douglas Fairbanks, Buster Crab, Rudolph Valentino. Yeah. The Thief of Baghdad. Uh, they were still charming, amazing stories. Uh, they were still fun films that people loved and watched and remembered with great affection. Uh, but were these culturally accurate depictions in all cases? Oh, decidedly not. Uh, like almost all of them fall short of the mark. Uh, we couldn't not mention uh, Sinbad and uh, Harry Housen. Oh, yeah. The which, Sinbad. Again, which, casting uh, a lot of Carolyn Monroe. 
uh, white people in Arabic roles. But, you know. It's... Yeah, welcome to, uh, like, everything ever uh, prior to a certain point in history. So uh, it just literally always failed on that front. You were not going to get any sense of authenticism uh, or, like, any kind of inclusiveness uh, beyond what, you know, the illusion that Hollywood would conjure uh, when they were putting together a movie because they wanted big names that people would go to the box office for here in the United States. So, yeah, that paradigm really created a lot of these inappropriate moments. Uh, and that culture of constant media usage of these concepts, yeah, you know, it does kind of enforce a narrative that this has been perpetually exploited. Uh, having said that, there are people who, from either direction, there are people who do not like the material uh, or, in some cases, do not like the cultures on which the material is based and sourced yeah. from. So you have these two opposing camps that both come together as one, join hands and sing Kumbaya uh. as they work towards the expungement or removal of materials like these. Uh, and for me, that is one of those you know, library moments where, you know, like when somebody tells you that this is the thing you should not read, I instantly go find it <laughs> and bury myself in it. I'm gonna just, I'm gonna like roll all over it. Uh, yeah. Because I have this profound distrust of people who explain to me what I should or should not read, what I should not be inspired by, what I should not embrace as, you know, a, another view of the world. Uh, that distrust runs so deep that it doesn't matter what direction people's critiques come from. Uh, when I'm warned away, I stick my nose in it and I can't help it. Uh, it's, you know, it's an almost Humphrey Bogart-esque problem there uh, where you know, the, the, the gumshoe gets stolen back off mm. uh, and old two fists in a 45 show up and go, nope, I'm going to stick my nose right in the buzzsaw. Uh, so I, I did that and I have read the original uh, Arabian Nights, not in its native languages, obviously, but uh, the couple of translations that I have read were marvelous reads, sometimes bawdy, sometimes inappropriate. But when you consider that this is even older than Don Quixote, which mm. aside from Shakespeare and the Bible, Don Quixote, and I would, I would hazard a guess uh, Arabian Nights, would be like right after Don Quixote in terms of like widest read book of ancient of like centuries old uh, reading. Yeah. So hugely culturally important and should not be lightheartedly cast aside. Uh, I, I think that cultural isolationism, uh, you know, as a as a facet of semi-nationalism. Uh, is insanely dangerous, like just a, a ludicrously under-considered threat to you know, the world, that we go back to the terrible things of yesteryear when we isolate ourselves so completely. Uh, so if it seems like I'm engaged with this material and that despite some of it being offensive, uh, I'm not necessarily championing the offensive parts, but I am saying is that it is important to engage. Mm. That, you know, you 
the price of refusal to engage, of you know, like closing the borders and saying, you know, we must maintain our purity of essence, mm. uh, like General Ripper, uh, like that, that comes with a really high price tag down the road. And that is not a price tag I think we should be risking the paying of. Now, so yeah, let's turn our attention. ripped off. You, you will encounter some stuff in here that some people are going to consider offensive. So I've ripped that Band-Aid off in our little like second segment opening. Yeah, very well. And now we hit the land of fate, Saqqara, yeah. the continent on which all of Al-Qadim is, as a setting, is placed. Right. And the land of Saqqara has a different feel from other parts of the AD&D universe, and they did not make any excuses. They launched right into a narrative about how to place this in your campaign. Nominally, they were going to place it in the Crown Realms, but that later got pushed away. Um, it kind of became a standalone. Its official location is the uncharted territory south of Faerun and southwest of Karatur in the Forgotten Realms. Uh, however, you know... Right, your, your Zekara may vary. Yeah, it can be placed within as a continent upon any planet or campaign that you please. Uh, and they make that pretty clear at the beginning. Right, and so this was the second edition era, so of course you would expect kits. But before you got into the kits and proficiency section, we got into the races. And there's not a lot of variables here. They keep the standard elf, dwarf, gnome, half-orc pretty well intact here. Yeah, and in fact, I would go as far as to mention that uh, in the peopling of Zakara, or the people of Zakara, even in chapter one, uh, it highlights that the place is very much a melting pot, uh, and you have uh, elves, half elves, dwarves, halflings, gnomes, orcs, and even ogres, uh, and in some cases, some of the other. Uh, oh, what what's the term for that? Not demi humans, but. Like hobgoblins. Uh, oh, humanoids. Yeah, the, many of the humanoid races are also culturally present, that everyone interacts as long as you are not actively committing crimes. Uh, or violently hostile. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, many of these are engaged in trade, uh, engaged in travel, and minding their own business. So, <laughs> uh, rather unusual starter there that like yep. yeah you're going to encounter in the street uh, you know orcs and ogres and whatnot so here we are with a picture 30 years prior to our current sentiments with the dispute are, are all orcs mindless hostile beasts uh, as we're having that debate now here's a book that had already taken that step 30 years ago and said Hey, you know what? Not all humanoids are ravening psychopaths. Okay, sometimes you know, like these are organized societies that, yes, they come into conflict, but that is not the arbiter of good or evil per se. What that means is they may have a conflict at some time in the past or in the future, but at the moment, if they're engaged with trade, coming to a city with a caravan of goods to you know, uh, convert to other things they need, they're as normative as any other culture. So. I I liked that from the get-go. Uh, mm -hmm. But it quickly launches into a full map key. Uh, of the Land of Fates and, and some of its past. The Haunted Lands, uh, which you know, like the, the mother proto-civilization emerged out of and which then eventually collapsed and is yep. now danger territory. <laughs> Beware, there are genies here. And ghouls. And uh, Ifrit and others. Uh, 
but along the coastlines of all of this place are the cities with you know like comparatively few rivers and low rainfall a lot of desert turf and there along the islands or uh, along the coastlines are the most relevant points of trade uh, wealth and activity so i i gotta say uh a wonderfully well thought out in minute detail uh, in terms of the landmass and the area around it. So many micro islands, none of which have been filled in. Okay, right. Everything is there for you to vote. And the, the final, you know, like uh, tally, the Forgotten Realms tradition has been observed here because that was the setting it was intended to drop into. Uh, there is a great deal left to be filled in with loose and reasonable descriptions of the most important areas, uh, including the, you know, Bazuz, City of Delights, Iyal, City of Intrigue, Kudra, City of Power, the Pantheist League, the High Desert, the Haunted Lands, and Afyal, uh, a number of small nations scattered throughout the crowded sea of the four major islands, only Ifal or Afyal, yeah. is ruled by a common government. But there are a number of important distinctions made to the Zakharan culture, including honor, family, piety, social station, purity, and hospitality. Uh, the idea of the salt is well talked about here. Once it remains in your system for three days, your host is responsible for you. Yeah, and that's a thing worthy of mention in the original tales. Uh, you know, the Thousand and One Nights, uh, there were incidents where a person breaks into a house and he opens a box and within the box he finds a small container for spices and he opens it and thinks that what he is about to sample is sugar in which case he intends to steal it however as soon as he places the powder upon his tongue he realizes it he realizes it is salt and that by default this means that he has accepted the hospitality of this home even by accident yep. and he closes the box puts everything away and leaves without stealing a thing because he cannot violate the what rule. is considered the most important principle of, you know, like the, the honored guest. Yep, and <laughs> they also make Sakaran society, then breaks down uh, everybody into two main divisions. And one is the al Badia, the nomadic desert folk, and the al Hadir, the city folk. Yeah, this is the real factionalism that is part of everyday life. Uh, as opposed to the differences between people's origins and backgrounds or their forms of employment. Uh, what they consider the Al-Badiyah and the Al-Hadar, uh, they're split by nomadism and city life. Uh, the nomads believe that theirs is the truest way of living that makes them the closest to you know, their gods. Uh, and the city dwellers believe that they are, you know, like... This is the living. way that the gods intended everything to be. Yes, that, you know, like, our excellence is self-evident and we have, you know, created a civilized society and therefore we are the superior ones. That's the real divisive moment, uh, like, number one characterizing the differences between people's lifestyles. Uh, that can actually have game impact. Social standing was important in this, uh... And I particularly loved uh, the categorization of station, uh, which it honestly gives uh, 
like as you move into the second chapter mm-hmm. on yeah as we get into the uh past yeah. the, the first part of the characters and into the classes themselves groups classes and kits there's a section called station in life and like this one uh it's reminiscent of uh, some other tables you may have seen in things such as birthright the relative importance or nobility of a person but station is somewhat different it's it's the even without being of noble blood or of immense wealth you can still be well stationed in life i mean uh, the implication here is that uh it is how well people regard you uh, the family from which you come the lineage uh, that you have been passed down may not necessarily be insanely powerful or insanely wealthy although those help uh, but the respect with which people view you and your family is far more important yes. and so the measurement of that then begins to encompass the deeds that you have accomplished and that people know about you and so your station can continue to rise even if you begin as a rogue or a beggar thief uh, yeah it doesn't matter you can rise in station greatly and this honors the tradition we're familiar with from Aladdin and Alibaba yeah. and so on uh, yeah the even thieves can rise their principal virtues will show through their lowly station yes and I like that so there's also uh losing station and uh masking one's station uh you know it, by creating the illusion that you are someone of greater substance and stature than you are uh, you know there, there are terrible consequences for that if caught but you can do it uh, then fixed station where you know yeah you're born in the nobility nobility and uh, have a silver spoon in your mouth yeah and the riches and excess so that's kind of hard you can lose it but it you have to work real hard to do it now and then it comes to like what's in a name and constructing surnames so that uh you know people can develop names that are you know campaign relevant right uh, and rather than just word soup word salad soup that's made into a conglomeration of authentic sounding names this is pretty close and similar to what goes on in, yeah and it mentions you know like genuine prefixes uh that are of you know uh Arabic origin, uh, the Ibn and Bin mean yep. son of, uh, and Abd would be the prefix for someone who, you know, is a slave. Uh, Min means from. Uh, Abu, Um, and Sit are relatively uncommon prefixes. Uh, Abu meaning father of, is yep. often followed by the name of the person's first child, or more commonly, the first male child. Uh, um would be mother of. But, you know, these are uh genuine prefixes and uh you know they might be awkwardly applied in some cases but used well they do they at least made an attempt to show you how to do this without insulting everybody in the room yeah so they next move into the character kits and here you get a pretty much mixed bag of stuff but uh it is very uh some of it's pretty uh, standard like the corsair or the outland warrior which you would expect and or mercenary barbarian but with that is also the mameluke and the faris the uh, holy warriors fighting for their faith as well as one of the more unique concepts the uh 
wizards, which were then divided into the Shahir, which were uh, their magic centers from the genie, and their familiars, the gen sorcerers, and of course, uh, then the elemental mages, which were of traditional Greek and Persian origin that you could find, as well as you could just be a Jimmy, which was an land wizard from beyond the land of faith, you just do whatever you want. Uh, this would lead to the complete Shahir's handbook, which was very interesting, as well as uh, some kits in there, the clockwork mage, which Mike was talking about, the idea of science fiction. And, uh, there's also the ghoul lord and the mystic of Nog and spell slayer. And as well as going through the rogues, which includes the barber. Yes, a kind of mixture of bard and rogue uh, that, you know, <laughs> a manual dexterity, uh, uh, conviviality, a little bit of whimsical madcap behavior to keep people on edge, yep. uh, a flair for the dramatic, and the ability to perform under pressure, all part of the popular barber mythos of the ancient time period. Yeah, also in there is uh, the beggar thief, the saluk. Uh, saluk is uh, basically anybody who is a, a free person who follows their own path. Yeah, kind of like your generic rogue class. Yeah, that scoundrel. would be more your you typical know, rogue. Even Han Solo would follow into that category. Along with uh, Ravun, which was the storytellers and bards of Zakara. Now, uh, they had the Holy Slayer or Assassin, which, uh, tragically, I feel like they could have gone into more detail, but for whatever reason, while they referenced the original story of the Assassin, they did not reference the origin of the term, which the, the people waking up in paradise uh, and then, like, being having all of this lavish surrounding in a drug haze while they're so happy and they're beautiful women and all those wine is flowing and you're just spoiled rotten in a opium haze. Uh, or a, a hashish haze, and then all of a sudden you fall asleep and you wake up in filth and in misery uh, and everything is horrible and you are told that like you have offended the god you know, and you have just literally been cast out of paradise and you have to earn your way back. And people Kill this would, person. And then people would just be like, yes, I will do whatever it takes. I want to go back. Uh, so, you know, the, the Hashashin, uh, or Eaters of Hashish, uh, were the basis for the word assassin. Uh, and, you know, they, they do make some reference to it, but they don't go into further detail. But that's, that's just the Holy Slayer. Yeah, and then the priest is the one I like is the pragmatist, the most liberal and common of all priests who try to adapt their faiths to the everyday world. The atheist, the conservative priests, promote a particular path of faith. And the moralist, the most conservative and intolerant. Yeah. <laughs> and they make a big deal about this because, yes, um, the pragmatist, the ethicist, and the moralist are the three kinds uh, of the fork that often find their way in conflict with one another. And some of the more extreme observances of faith can lead to discord. Yeah. But this is the other piece of factionalism beyond merely, you know, like, uh, whether one is uh, from a nomadic background or a city-dwelling background. Uh, the other big division is, you know, where one comes from in terms of religious philosophy. Uh, the, you know, welcoming, open arms, you know, light-hearted, cheerful pragmatists. Uh, the somewhat more rigid, but, you know, like devout and personally connected ethoists. Or the moralists 
who are really aggressive on the like there is absolutely no other way than my way you know that, yep. uh, <laughs> and then they also <laughs> spice that with the hakima the wise women who serve as the advisors to the other tribes the kahin the idol priests of Zakara, mostly uh, druidical in nature and the mystics uh, who are basically the precursors of oracles and other such things as well as just having your own now, going over this, there's a lot of things going on, and there's a section about uh, proficiencies, but we're going to kind of yeah, move. They, they, they brought a few new proficiencies into this that I, I feel like, okay. you know, I just want right, to give, right. like, I'll keep it down to like 30, 45 seconds. Uh, awareness, begging, bureaucracy, debate, display weapon prowess, because there are. Yeah, that's a thing. Uh, genie lore, uh, grooming, which, like, a, make one look their best, uh, haggling metalworking, riding horse specialization, camel specialization, and that was it. Uh, now, those would all be relevant in a campaign like that, but now... And then they turn to the perils of adventuring, the ar use of armor, Ooh, yeah. how to survive in the harsh desert conditions, yeah. and also uh, seafaring rules, which are already present in the game, but at this point they really extrapolate upon them. And then they have the equipment section. Oh, and it's a wonderful... Uh, yeah, it really sets you up for... It's a terrific case. addendum with the costs of uh, various things. Yeah. Yeah, this campaign specific mm -hmm. to this location. Uh, and it's multiple pages. Uh, yeah, and the artwork here is the, some of the best out of that era. You find very little skimping on the detail. Full-color plates are beautiful. The bordering is in this brass metallic. There's this beautiful brocade work, almost tapestry-like on the covers. And I want to candidly acknowledge that uh, like the services and things that can be purchased thing also has a section with slaves, which we mentioned, like ripping the Band-Aid off. This is one of those things that offends the crap out of people. Uh, you know, bearers, eunuchs, house servants, laborers, entertainers, courtesans, male or female, uh, specialists, warriors, and guards. Uh, this is only something that happens where permitted by local authorities. Check with regional government before purchase. Uh, that, you know, it's, it's yeah, a thing it's that a is a stumbling block. And DMs that find it objectionable, I would strongly recommend clipping that out. And yeah, saying, you know, even Dark Sun would never publish, uh, TSR would never publish a list for slaves in Dark Sun. And that was primarily driven on slave trade. Yeah. Which... Because they didn't want the player characters becoming slave traders. They didn't want to have that. That was a bad look for the game. Yeah, that was an onus they did not wish to be hung around the neck of D&D. Uh, now, this one, uh, they talk about the Shahir abilities, but the it's setting itself... The unique magics of that territory deserve coverage, and then there's a section on spells. Oh, yeah, they get, they talk about how Shahir are different spells. than others, because the uh, you send, as a Shahir, you send your genes, our gen spirit, to fetch you a spell. Yeah. Go, bring me a spell for this. Yep. And, and it, it goes and gets you a spell. Or a useful ability if it can't. And then gives you, you bonus. You upgrade the level of gene that the uh, yep. Shahir, you know, like, uh, uh, is working with as you go until they're bringing you more and more powerful levels of stuff. Like, acquire me an audience with a mighty uh, elemental lord. You know, whoa. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So it really puts it in there. And Al Qadim doesn't have much on how to adventure. I mean, they have the perils of adventuring, but this is a lot to pack in into almost 300 pages, and it does a good job of covering culture. Now, later they would come out with bestiary dedicated to it, as well as a kind of guide for 
like the Shahir's handbook for players to play one of the performative or nominatively uh, pejorative classes in here, as well as a number of supplements for adventures. And that's how they explained it. But, you know, pretty much you already knew how where you were going to go with this when you purchased it, if you were ready to jump into an Arabian adventure fantasy setting. Here it was. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, and I, I got to say, uh, there is some criticism that it is not authentic enough. Uh, and that it should actually, you know, yeah. more closely resemble. And I'm like, no, I, I don't think you've understood. Yeah, there's no that Islam. This is, you know, this is inspired by uh, regional concepts, uh, but much like Greyhawk is certainly inspired and informed by certain medieval, you know, eras. Uh, it's not bound by them or linked to them so firmly that it can't budge. Uh, and the same is true with Al-Qadim. It, it definitely has, uh, the intent is to create that flavor while delivering a very large amount of new material in new situations. So I, I don't feel like it was beholden to, you know, like, we must absolutely commit totally to this. No, uh, they did a nice mix for its time period. And despite the fact that it has bummed some people out, uh, that it is like driven a little wedge, I know it was gone into with the best of intentions and to minimize the blast zone. Sure. Uh, but like all things of a previous era, uh, it will not possess the sentimentalities, uh, the, the sentiments or, you know, uh, concepts of today. You know, here we are about 30 odd years later yeah, and it is not, you know, it does not hold up as well as one would hope. However, Final judgment, uh, it's a thing where people really should decide for themselves. And if you find portions objectionable, edit, edit, edit. Yep. I see it as a terrific source book for any DM, uh, but it requires that personal touch to make it useful for you. And, you know, the the, uh, the adventuring situation that uh, came out of this book, this was more to get you, uh, this, it doesn't have much to offer for an adventure. It doesn't have a standard starter adventure it has a few uh, little hints here and there but um you know you're on your own uh, making your own adventures out of this one that's why i think it's a little short-sighted because they had so much to cover and change on this so that may have been one of its detractions yeah but it was very popular it did uh for a while um it was been designed initially just for about a two-year run and then that was it and they extended it for an extra year, so it got some extra support. Well, it got a lot of support from Dungeon Magazine and other people, but uh, the RPGA had a, a little Land of Fate Living campaign going on. But, oh, probably. Yeah. But all right, well, that'll do it for us. We hope you enjoyed our retro look at Al-Kadim, and if that's something that you're interested in, go ahead and check it out. Drive through RPG, of course, get yourself a copy of that. But as always, we just try to uh, show what's, what was once possible and what still is. So there's no game that can ever really true goes, truly goes away. So with that said, I think we'll wrap it up here. And we'll bid you adieu. We'll catch you next time here at the Dice Escaping. So until that next time, may, may the, the dice, dice always roll in your favor. favor. We're out. See ya.